Chapter 37 The doubt hinted by Mr. Vincey, whether it were only the general election or the end of the world that was coming on, now that George IV was dead, Parliament dissolved, Wellington and Peel generally depreciated, and the new king apologetic, was a feeble type of the uncertainties in provincial opinion at that time. With the glow-warm lights of country places, how could men see which were their own thoughts in the confusion of a Tory ministry passing liberal measures, of Tory nobles and electors being anxious to return liberals rather than the friends of the recreant ministers, and of outcries for remedies which seemed to have a mysteriously remote bearing on private interest, and were made suspicious by the advocacy of disagreeable neighbors? Buyers of the Middlemarch newspapers found themselves in an anomalous position. During the agitation on the Catholic question, many had given up the pioneer, which had a motto from Charles James Fox and was in the van of progress, because it had taken Peel's side about the papists and had thus blotted its liberalism with the toleration of Jesuitry and Baal. They were ill-satisfied with the trumpet, which, since its blasts against Rome and in the general flaccidity of the public mind, nobody knowing who would support whom, had become feeble in its blowing. It was a time, according to a noticeable article in the Pioneer, when the crying needs of the country might well counteract a reluctance to public action on the part of men whose minds had, from long experience, acquired breadth as well as concentration, decision of judgment as well as tolerance, dispassionateness as well as energy. In fact, all those qualities which in the melancholy experience of mankind have been the least disposed to share lodgings. Mr. Hackbutt, whose fluent speech was at that time floating more widely than usual and leaving much uncertainty as to its ultimate channel, was heard to say in Mr. Hawley's office that the article in question emanated from Brooke of Tipton and that Brooke had secretly bought the Pioneer some months ago. That means mischief, eh? said Mr. Hawley. He's got the freak of being a popular man now, after dangling about like a stray tortoise. So much the worse for him. I've had my eye on him for some time. He shall be prettily pumped upon. He's a damned bad landlord. What business has an old countryman to come currying favor with a low set of dark blue freemen? As to his paper, I only hope he may do the writing himself. It would be worth our paying for. I understand he's got a very brilliant young fellow to edit it, who can write the highest style of leading article, quite equal to anything in the London papers, and he means to take very high ground on reform. Let Brooke reform his rent roll. He's a cursed old screw, and the buildings all over his estate are going to rack. I suppose this young fellow is some loose fish from London. His name is Ladislaw. He's said to be of foreign extraction. I know the sort, said Mr. Hawley, some emissary. He'll begin with flourishing about the rights of man and end with murdering a wench. That's the style. You must concede that there are abuses, Hawley, said Mr. Hackbutt, foreseeing some political disagreement with his family lawyer. I myself should never favor moderate views. In fact, I take my stand with Huskisson. But I cannot blind myself to the consideration that the non-representation of large towns— Large towns be damned, said Mr. Hawley, impatient of exposition. I know a little too much about Middlemarch elections. Let them quash every pocket borough tomorrow and bring in every mushroom town in the kingdom. They'll only increase the expense of getting into Parliament. I go upon facts. 
Mr. Hawley's disgust at the notion of the pioneer being edited by an emissary and of Brooke becoming actively political, as if a tortoise of desultory pursuits should protrude its small head ambitiously and become rampant, was hardly equal to the annoyance felt by some members of Mr. Brooke's own family. The result had oozed forth gradually, like the discovery that your neighbor has set up an unpleasant kind of manufacture, which will be permanently under your nostrils without legal remedy. The pioneer had been secretly bought even before Will Ladislaw's arrival, the expected opportunity having offered itself in the readiness of the proprietor to part with a valuable property which did not pay. And in the interval since Mr. Brooke had written his invitation, these germinal ideas of making his mind tell upon the world at large which had been present in him from his younger years, but had hitherto lain in some obstruction, had been sprouting under cover. The development was much furthered by a delight in his guest which proved greater even than he had anticipated, for it seemed that Will was not only at home in all those artistic and literary subjects which Mr. Brooke had gone into at one time, but that he was strikingly ready at seizing the points of the political situation and dealing with them in that large spirit which, aided by adequate memory, lends itself to quotation and general effectiveness of treatment. He seems to me a kind of Shelley, you know, Mr. Brooke took an opportunity of saying, for the gratification of Mr. Cossabon. I don't mean as to anything objectionable, laxities or atheism or anything of that kind, you know. Ladislaw's sentiments in every way, I'm sure, are good. Indeed, we were talking a great deal together last night. But he has the same sort of enthusiasm for liberty, freedom, emancipation, a fine thing under guidance. Under guidance, you know. I think I shall be able to put him on the right tack and I'm the more pleased because he's a relation of yours, Caspon. If the right tack implied anything more precise than the rest of Mr. Brooks' speech, Mr. Caspon silently hoped that it referred to some occupation at a great distance from Lowick. He had disliked Will while he helped him, but he had begun to dislike him still more now that Will had declined his help. That is the way with us when we have any uneasy jealousy in our disposition. If our talents are chiefly of the borrowing kind, our honey-sipping cousin, whom we have gave reasons for objecting to, is likely to have a secret contempt for us, and anyone who admires him passes an oblique criticism on ourselves. Having the scruples of rectitude in our souls, we're above the meanness of injuring him. Rather, we meet all his claims on us by active benefits, and the drawing of checks for him, being a superiority which he must recognize, gives our bitterness a milder infusion. Now Mr. Casabon had been deprived of that superiority as anything more than a remembrance in a sudden capricious manner. His antipathy to Will did not spring from the common jealousy of a winter-worn husband. It was something deeper, bred by his lifelong claims and discontents. But Dorothea, now that she was present, Dorothea, as a young wife who herself had shown an offensive capability of criticism, necessarily gave concentration to the uneasiness which had before been vague. Will Ladislaw, on his side, felt that his dislike was flourishing at the expense of his gratitude, and spent much inward discourse in justifying the dislike. Casabon hated him. He knew that very well. On his first entrance, he could discern a bitterness in the mouth and a venom in the glance, which would almost justify declaring a war in spite of past benefits. He was much obliged to Casabon in the past, but really the act of marrying this wife was a set-off against the obligation. 
It was a question whether gratitude which refers to what is done for oneself ought not to give way to indignation at what is done against another. And Casabon had done a wrong to Dorothea in marrying her. A man was bound to know himself better than that, and if he chose to grow gray crunching bones in a cavern, he had no business to be luring a girl into his companionship. It is the most horrible of virgin sacrifices, said Will, and he painted to himself what were Dorothea's inward sorrows as if he were riding a choric wail. But he would never lose sight of her. He would watch over her. If he gave up everything else in life, he would watch over her, and she should know that she had one slave in the world. Will had, to use Sir Thomas Brown's phrase, a passionate prodigality, a statement both to himself and others. The simple truth was that nothing then invited him so strongly as the presence of Dorothea. Invitations of the formal kind had been wanting, however, for Will had never been asked to go to Lowick. Mr. Brooke, indeed, confident of doing everything agreeable, which Casabon, poor fellow, was too much absorbed to think of, had arranged to bring Ladislaw to Lowick several times, not neglecting, meanwhile, to introduce him elsewhere on every opportunity as a young relative of Casabon's. And though Will had not seen Dorothea alone, their interviews had been enough to restore her former sense of young companionship with one who was cleverer than herself, yet seemed ready to be swayed by her. Poor Dorothea, before her marriage, had never found much room in other minds for what she cared most to say, and she'd not, as we know, enjoyed her husband's superior instruction so much as she had expected. If she spoke with any keenness of interest to Mr. Casabon, he heard her with an air of patience, as if she'd been given a quotation from the delectus familiar to him from his tender years, and sometimes mentioned curtly what ancient sects or personages had held similar ideas, as if there were too much of that sort in stock already. At other times, he would inform her that she was mistaken, and reassert what her remark had questioned. But Will Ladislaw always seemed to see more in what she said than she herself saw. Dorothea had little vanity but she had the ardent woman's need to rule beneficently by making the joy of another soul. Hence, the mere chance of seeing Will occasionally was like a lunette opened in the wall of her prison, giving her a glimpse of the sunny air, and this pleasure began to nullify her original alarm at what her husband might think about the introduction of Will as her uncle's guest. On this subject, Mr. Casabon had remained dumb, but Will wanted to talk with Dorothea alone and was impatient of slow circumstance. However slight the terrestrial intercourse between Dante and Beatrice or Petrarch and Laura, time changes the proportion of things, and in later days it is preferable to have fewer sonnets and more conversation. Necessity excused Stratagem, but Stratagem was limited by the dread of offending Dorothea. He found out at last that he wanted to take a particular sketch at Lowick, and one morning, when Mr. Brooke had to drive along the Lowick Road on his way to the county town, Will asked to be set down with his sketchbook and camp stool at Lowick, and without announcing himself at the manor, settled himself to sketch in a position where he must see Dorothea if she came out to walk, and he knew that she usually walked an hour in the morning. But the stratagem was defeated by the weather. Clouds gathered with treacherous quickness, the rain came down, and Will was obliged to take shelter in the house. He intended, on the strength of relationship, to go into the drawing room and wait there without being announced, and seeing his old acquaintance, the butler in the hall, he said, Don't mention that I'm here, Pratt. I'll wait till luncheon. I know Mr. Casabon does not like to be disturbed when he's in the library. Master's out, sir. There's only Mrs. Casabon in the library. I better tell her you're here, sir. 
said Pratt, a red-cheeked man given to lively converse with Tantrip, and often agreeing with her that it must be dull for Madame. Oh, very well. This confounded rain has hindered me from sketching, said Will, feeling so happy that he affected indifference with delightful ease. In another minute he was in the library, and Dorothea was meeting him with her sweet, unconstrained smile. Mr. Casabon has been to the Archdeacon's, she said, at once. I don't know whether he'll be at home again long before dinner. He was uncertain how long he should be. Did you want to say anything particular to him? No. I came to sketch, but the rain drove me in. Else I would not have disturbed you yet. I suppose that Mr. Casabon was here, and I know he dislikes interruption at this hour. I'm indebted to the rain, then. I'm so glad to see you. Dorothea uttered these common words with the simple sincerity of an unhappy child visited at school. I've really came for the chance of seeing you alone, said Will, mysteriously forced to be just as simple as she was. He could not stay to ask himself why not. I wanted to talk about things as we did in Rome. It always makes a difference when other people are present. Yes, said Dorothea in her clear, full tone of assent. Sit down. She seated herself on a dark ottoman with the brown books behind her, looking in her plain dress of some thin woolen white material, without a single ornament on her besides her wedding ring, as if she were under a vow to be different from all other women. And Will sat down opposite her at two yards' distance, the light falling on his bright curls and delicate but rather petulant profile, with its defiant curves of lip and chin. Each looked at the other as if they had been two flowers which had opened then and there. Dorothea, for the moment, forgot her husband's mysterious irritation against Will. It seemed fresh water at her thirsty lips to speak without fear to the one person whom she had found receptive. For in looking backward through sadness, she exaggerated a past solace. I've often thought that I should like to talk to you again, she said immediately. It seems strange to me how many things I said to you. I remember them all, said Will with the unspeakable content in his soul of feeling that he was in the presence of a creature worthy to be perfectly loved. I think his own feelings at that moment were perfect, for we mortals have our divine moments when love is satisfied in the completeness of the beloved object. I've tried to learn a great deal since we were in Rome, said Dorothea. I can read Latin a little, and I'm beginning to understand just a little Greek. I can help Mr. Casabon better now. I can find out references for him and save his eyes in many ways but it's very difficult to be learned. It seems as if people were worn out on the way to great thoughts and can never enjoy them because they're too tired. If a man has a capacity for great thoughts, he's likely to overtake them before he is decrepit, said Will with irrepressible quickness. But through certain sensibilities, Dorothea was as quick as he, and seeing her face change, he added immediately, but it is quite true that the best minds have been sometimes overstrained in working out their ideas. You correct me, said Dorothea. I expressed myself ill. I should have said that those who have great thoughts get too much worn in working them out. I used to feel about that, even when I was a little girl. And it always seemed to me that the use I should like to make of my life would be to help someone who did great works, so that his burden might be lighter. Dorothea was led on to this bit of autobiography without any sense of making a revelation but she had never before said anything to Will which threw so strong a light on her marriage. He did not shrug his shoulders, and for want of that muscular outlet he thought the more irritably of beautiful lips kissing holy skulls and other emptinesses ecclesiastically enshrined. Also, he had to take care that his speech should not betray that thought. 
but you may easily carry the help too far, he said, and get overwrought yourself. Are you not too much shut up? You already look paler. It would be better for Mr. Casabon to have a secretary. He could easily get a man who would do half his work for him. It would save him more effectually, and you need only help him in lighter ways. How can you think of that? said Dorothea, in a tone of earnest remonstrance. I should have no happiness if I did not help him in his work. What could I do? There's no good to be done in Lowick. The only thing I desire is to help him more, and he objects to a secretary. Please, not to mention that again. Certainly not. Now I know your feeling. But I've heard both Mr. Brooke and Sir James Chetham express the same wish. Yes, said Dorothea, but they don't understand. They want me to be a great deal on horseback and have the garden altered and new conservatories to fill up my days. I thought you could understand that one's mind has other wants, she added rather impatiently. Besides, Mr. Casabon cannot bear to hear of a secretary. My mistake is excusable, said Will. In old days, I used to hear Mr. Casabon speak as if he looked forward to having a secretary. Indeed, he held out the prospect of that office to me, but I turned out to be not good enough for it. Dorothea was trying to extract out of this an excuse for her husband's evident repulsion, as she said with a playful smile, You are not a steady worker enough. No, said Will, shaking his head backwards somewhat after the manner of a spirited horse, and then the old irritable demon prompting him to give another good pinch at the mothwings of poor Mr. Casabon's glory, he went on, And I have seen since that Mr. Casabon does not like anyone to overlook his work and know thoroughly what he's doing. He's too doubtful, too uncertain of himself. May not be good for much, but he dislikes me because I disagree with him. Will was not without his intentions to be always generous, but our tongues are little triggers which have usually been pulled before general intentions can be brought to bear. It was too intolerable that Casabon's dislike of him should not be fairly accounted for to Dorothea. Yet when he'd spoken, he was rather uneasy as to the effect on her. But Dorothea was strangely quiet not immediately indignant, as she had been on an occasion like Rome. And the cause lay deep. She was no longer struggling against the perception of facts, but adjusting herself to their clearest perception. And now when she looked steadily at her husband's failure, still more at his possible consciousness of failure, she seemed to be looking along the one track where duty became tenderness. Will's want of reticence might have been met with more severity if he had not already been recommended to her mercy by her husband's dislike which might seem hard to her till she saw better reason for it. She did not answer at once, but after looking down ruminatingly, she said with some earnestness, Mr. Casabon must have overcome his dislike of you so far as his actions were concerned, and that's admirable. Yes, he's shown a sense of justice in family matters. It was an abominable thing that my grandmother should have been disinherited because she made what they called a mesalliance though there was nothing to be said against her husband except that he was a Polish refugee who gave lessons for his bread. I wish I knew all about her, said Dorothea. I wonder how she bore the change from wealth to poverty. I wonder whether she was happy with her husband. Do you know much about them? No. Only that my grandfather was a patriot, a bright fellow, could speak many languages, musical, got his bread by teaching all sorts of things. They both died rather early, and I never knew much of my father, beyond what my mother told me, but he inherited the musical talents. I remember his slow walk and his long, thin hands, and one day remains with me when he was lying ill and I was very hungry and had only a little bit of bread. Ugh, what a different life from mine, said Dorothea, with keen interest. 
clasping her hands on her lap. I've always had too much of everything, but tell me how it was. Mr. Casabon could not have known about you then. No, but my father had made himself known to Mr. Casabon, and that was my last hungry day. My father died soon after, and my mother and I were well taken care of. Mr. Casabon always expressly recognized it as his duty to take care of us because of the harsh injustice which had been shown to his mother's sister. But now I'm telling you what is not new to you. In his utmost soul, Will was conscious of wishing to tell Dorothea what was rather new, even in his own construction of things, namely that Mr. Casabon had never done more than pay a debt towards him. Will was much too good a fellow to be easy under the sense of being ungrateful, and when gratitude has become a matter of reasoning, there were many ways of escaping from its bonds. No, answered Dorothea. Mr. Casabon has always avoided dwelling on his own honorable actions. She did not feel that her husband's conduct was depreciated, but this notion of what justice had required in his relations with Will Ladislaw took strong hold on her mind. After a moment's pause, she added, He'd never told me that he supported your mother. Is she still living? No. She died by an accident, a fall, four years ago. It's curious that my mother, too, ran away from her family, but not for the sake of her husband. She never would tell me anything about her family, except that she forsook them to get her own living. Went on the stage, in fact. She was a dark-eyed creature with crisp ringlets and never seemed to be getting old. You see, I come of rebellious blood on both sides, Will ended, smiling brightly at Dorothea while she was still looking with serious intentness before her, like a child seeing a drama for the first time. But her face, too, broke into a smile as she said, That is your apology, I suppose, for having yourself been rather rebellious. I mean, to Mr. Casabon's wishes. You must remember that you've not done what he thought best for you, and if he dislikes you, you were speaking of dislike a little while ago. But I should rather say, if he's shown any painful feelings towards you, you must consider how sensitive he's become from the wearing effect of study. Perhaps, she continued, getting into a pleading tone, my uncle has not told you how serious Mr. Casabon's illness was. It would be very petty of us who are well and can bear things to think much of small offenses from those who carry a weight of trial. You teach me better, said Will. I will never grumble on that subject again. There was a gentleness in his tone which came from the unutterable contentment of perceiving what Dorothea was hardly conscious of, that she was traveling into the remoteness of pure pity and loyalty towards her husband. Will was ready to adore her pity and loyalty if she would associate himself with her in manifesting them. I've really sometimes been a perverse fellow, he went on, but I will never again, if I can help it, do or say what you would disapprove. That is very good of you, said Dorothea, with another open smile. I shall have a little kingdom, then, where I shall give laws but you will soon go away out of my rule, I imagine. You will soon be tired of staying at the Grange. That is a point I wanted to mention to you, one of the reasons why I wish to speak to you alone. Mr. Brooke proposes that I should stay in this neighborhood. He's bought one of the Middlemarch newspapers, and he wishes me to conduct that, and also to help him in other ways. Would not that be a sacrifice of higher prospects for you? said Dorothea. Perhaps, but I've always been blamed for thinking of prospects and not settling to anything. And here is something offered to me. If you would not like me to accept it, I'll give it up. Otherwise, I would rather stay in this part of the country than go away. I belong to nobody anywhere else. I should like you to stay very much, said Dorothea at once, as simply and readily as she'd spoken at Rome. There was not the shadow of a reason in her mind at that moment why she should not say so. Then I will stay 
said Ladislaw, shaking his head backward, rising and going towards the window, as if to see whether the rain had ceased. But the next moment, Dorothea, according to a habit which was con getting continually stronger, began to reflect that her husband felt differently from herself, and she colored deeply under the double embarrassment of having expressed what might be in opposition to her husband's feeling, and of having to suggest this opposition to Will. His face was not turned towards her, and this made it easier to say. But my opinion is of little consequence on such a subject. I think you should be guided by Mr. Casabon. I spoke without thinking of anything else than my own feeling, which has nothing to do with the real question. But it now occurs to me, perhaps Mr. Casabon might see that the proposal was not wise. Can you not wait now and mention it to him? I can't wait today, said Will, inwardly seared by the possibility that Mr. Casabon would enter. The rain is quite over now. I told Mr. Brooke not to call for me. I would rather walk the five miles. She'll strike across Hellsill Common and see the gleams on the wet grass. I like that. He approached her to shake hands quite hurriedly, longing but not daring to say, don't mention the subject to Mr. Casabon. No, he dared not, could not say it. To ask her to be less simple and direct would be like breathing on the crystal that you want to see the light through. And there was always the other great dread of himself becoming dimmed and forever ray-shorn in her eyes. I wish you could have stayed, said Dorothea, with a touch of mournfulness, as she rose and put out her hand. She also had her thought, which she did not like to express. Will certainly ought to lose no time in consulting Mr. Casabon's wishes, but for her urge this might seem an undue dictation. So they only said goodbye, and Will quitted the house, striking across the field so as not to run any risk of encountering Mr. Casabon's carriage, which, however, did not appear at the gate until four o'clock. That was an unpropitious hour for coming home. It was too early to gain the moral support under ennui of dressing his person for dinner, and too late to undress his mind of the day's frivolous ceremony and affairs, so as to be prepared for a good plunge into the serious business of study. On such occasions, he usually threw into an easy chair in the library and allowed Dorothea to read the London papers to him, closing his eyes the while. Today, however, he declined that relief, observing that he had already had too much public details urged upon him, but he spoke more cheerfully than usual when Dorothea asked about his fatigue and added with that air of formal effort which never forsook him even when he spoke without his waistcoat and cravat. I've had the gratification of meeting my formal acquaintance, Dr. Spanning, today, and of being praised by one who is himself a worthy recipient of praise. He spoke very handsomely of my late tractate on the Egyptian mysteries, using, in fact, terms which it would not become me to repeat. In uttering the last clause, Mr. Casabon leaned over the elbow of his chair and swayed his head up and down, apparently as a muscular outlet instead of that recapitulation, which would not have been becoming. I'm very glad you've had that pleasure, said Dorothea, delighted to see her husband less weary than usual at this hour. Before you came, I'd been regretting that you happened to be out today. Why so, my dear? said Mr. Casabon, throwing himself backward again. Because Mr. Ladislaw has been here, and he's mentioned a proposal of my uncle's, which I should like to know your opinion of. Her husband, she felt, was really concerned in this question. Even with her ignorance of the world, she had a vague impression that the position offered to Will was out of keeping with his family connections, and certainly Mr. Casabon had a claim to be consulted. He did not speak, but merely bowed. Dear uncle, you know, has many projects. It appears that he's bought one of the Middlemarch newspapers, and he's asked Mr. Ladislaw to stay in this neighborhood and conduct the paper for him, besides helping him in other ways. Dorothea looked at her husband while she spoke, 
but he had at first blinked and finally closed his eyes as if to save them, while his lips became more tense. What is your opinion? she added, rather timidly, after a slight pause. Did Mr. Ladislaw come on purpose to ask my opinion? said Mr. Casabon, opening his eyes narrowly with a knife-edged look at Dorothea. She was really uncomfortable on the point he inquired about, but she only became a little more serious, and her eyes did not swerve. No, she answered immediately. He did not say that he came to ask your opinion, but when he mentioned the proposal, he of course expected me to tell you of it. Mr. Casabon was silent. I fear that you might feel some objection, but certainly a young man with so much talent might be very useful to my uncle, might help him to do good in a better way. And Mr. Ladislaw wishes to have some fixed occupation. He has been blamed, he says, for not seeking something of that kind, and he'd like to stay in this neighborhood because no one cares for him elsewhere. Dorothea felt that this was a consideration to soften her husband. However, he did not speak, and she presently recurred to Dr. Spanning in the Archdeacon's breakfast. But there was no longer sunshine on these subjects. The next morning, without Dorothea's knowledge, Mr. Casabon dispatched the following letter, beginning, Dear Mr. Ladislaw, he'd always before addressed him as Will. Mrs. Casabon informs me that a proposal has been made to you, and, according to an inference by no means stretched, has on your part been in some degree entertained, which involves your residence in this neighborhood in a capacity which I am justified in saying touches my own position in such a way as renders it not only natural and warrantable in me when that effect is viewed under the influence of legitimate feeling, but incumbent on me when the same effect is considered in the light of my responsibilities, to state at once that your acceptance of the proposal above indicated would be highly offensive to me. That I have some claim to the exercise of a veto here would not, I believe, be denied by any reasonable person cognizant of the relations between us. Relations which, though thrown into the past by your recent procedure, are not thereby annulled in their character of determining antecedents. I will not here make reflections on any person's judgment. It is enough for me to point out to yourself that there are certain social fitnesses and proprieties which should hinder a somewhat near relative of mine from becoming any wise conspicuous in this vicinity in a status not only much beneath my own, but associated at best with the scoliasm of literacy or political adventures. At any rate, the contrary issue must exclude you from further reception at my house. Yours faithfully, Edward Casabon. Meanwhile, Dorothea's mind was innocently at work towards the further embitterment of her husband, dwelling with the sympathy that grew to agitation on what Will had told her about his parents and grandparents. Any private hours in her day were usually spent in her blue-green boudoir, and she had come to be very fond of its pallid quaintness. Nothing had been outwardly altered there, but while the summer had gradually advanced over the western fields beyond the avenue of elms, the bare room had gathered within it those memories of an inward life which fill the air as with the cloud of good or bad angels the invisible yet active forms of our spiritual triumphs or our spiritual falls. She'd been so used to struggle for and to find resolve in looking along the avenue towards the arch of western light that the vision itself had gained a communicating power. Even the pale stag seemed to have reminding glances and to mean mutely, yes, we know, and the group of delicately touched miniatures had made an audience as of beings no longer disturbed about their own earthly lot, but still humanly interested especially the mysterious Aunt Julia, about whom Dorothea had never found it easy to question her husband. And now, since their conversations with Will, many fresh images had gathered round that Aunt Julia, who was Will's grandmother, the presence of that delicate miniature, so like a living face that she knew, 
hoping to concentrate her feelings. What a wrong to cut off the girl from the family protection and, and inheritance only because she had chosen a man who was poor. Dorothea, early troubling her elders with questions about the facts around her, had wrought herself into some independent clearness as to the historical, political reasons why eldest sons had superior rights and why land should be entailed. Those reasons impressing her with a certain awe might be weightier than she knew, but here was a question of ties which left them uninfringed. Here was a daughter whose child, even according to the ordinary aping of aristocratic institutions by people who were no more aristocratic than retired grocers, and who had no more land to keep together than a lawn in a paddock, would have a prior claim. Was inheritance a question of liking or of responsibility? All the energy of Dorothea's nature went on the side of responsibility, the fulfillment of claims founded on her own deeds, such as marriage and parentage. It was true, she said to herself, that Mr. Casabon had a debt to the Ladislaws, that he had to pay back what the Ladislaws had been wronged of. Now she began to think of her husband's will, which had been made at the time of their marriage, leaving the bulk of his property to her, with proviso in case of her having children. That ought to be altered, no time ought to be lost. This very question, which had just arisen about Will Ladislaw's occupation, was the occasion for placing things on a new right footing. Her husband, she felt sure, according to all his previous conduct, would be ready to take the just view if she proposed it. She, in whose interest an unfair concentration of the property had been urged, his sense of right had surmounted and would continue to surmount anything that might be called antipathy. She suspected that her husband's scheme was disapproved by Mr. Casabon, and this made it seem all the more opportune that a fresh understanding should be begun. She suspected that her uncle's scheme was disapproved by Mr. Casabon, and this made it seem all the more opportune that a fresh understanding should be begun, so that instead of Will's starting penniless and accepting the first function that offered itself, he should find himself in possession of a rightful income, which should be paid by her husband during his life, and, by an immediate alteration of the will, should be secured at his death. The vision of all this as to what ought to be done seemed to Dorothea like a sudden letting in of daylight, waking her from her previous stupidity and incurious self-absorbed ignorance about her husband's relation to others. Will Ladislaw had refused Mr. Casabon's future aid on a ground that no longer appeared right to her and Mr. Casabon had never himself seen fully what was the claim upon him. But he will, said Dorothea. The great strength of his character lies here. And what are we doing with our money? We make no use of half of our income. My own money buys me nothing but an uneasy conscience. There was a peculiar fascination for Dorothea in this division of property intended for herself, and always regarded by her as excessive. She was blind, you see, to many things obvious to others, likely to tread in the wrong places, as Celia had warned her yet her blindness to whatever did not lie in her own pure purpose carried her safely by the side of precipices where vision would have been perilous with fear. The thoughts he had, which had gathered vividness in the solitude of her boudoir occupied her incessantly through the day on which Mr. Casabon had sent his letter to Will. Everything seemed hindrance to her till she could find an opportunity of opening her heart to her husband. To his preoccupied mind, all subjects were to be approached gently and she had never since his illness lost from her consciousness the dread of agitating him. But when young ardor is set brooding over the conception of a prompt deed, the deed itself seems to start forth with independent life, mastering ideal obstacles. The day passed in a somber fashion, not unusual, though Mr. Casabon was perhaps unusually silent. 
but there were hours of the night which might be counted on as opportunities of conversation. For Dorothea, unaware of her husband's sleeplessness, had established a habit of rising, lighting a candle, and reading him to sleep again. And this night she was from the beginning sleepless, excited by resolves. He slept as usual for a few hours, but she had risen softly and had sat in the darkness for nearly an hour before he said, Dorothea, since you're up, will you light a candle? Do you feel ill, dear? was her first question as she obeyed him. No, not at all. But I shall be obliged, since you're up, if you'll read me a few pages of Louth. May I talk to you a little instead? said Dorothea. Certainly. I've been thinking about money all day, that I have always had too much, and especially the prospect of too much. These, my dear Dorothea, are providential arrangements. But if one has too much in consequence of others being wronged, it seems to me that the divine voice which tells us to set that wrong right must be obeyed. What, my love, is the bearing of your remark? That you've been too liberal in arrangements for me. I mean, with regard to property. And that makes me unhappy. How so? I have none but comparatively distant connections. I've been led to think about your Aunt Julia and how she was left in poverty only because she married a poor man, an act which was not disgraceful since he was not unworthy. It was on that ground, I know, that you educated Mr. Ladislaw and provided for his mother. Dorothy waited a few moments for some answer that would help her onward. None came, and her next words seemed the more forcible to her, falling clear upon the dark silence. But surely we should regard his claim as a much greater one, even to the half of that property which I know that you've destined for me and I think he ought at once to be provided for in that understanding. It's not right that, it should, that he should be in the dependence of poverty while we are rich. And if there's any objection to the proposal he mentioned, the giving him his true place and his true share would set aside any motive for his accepting it. Mr. Ladislaw has probably been speaking to you on this subject, said Mr. Casabon, with a certain biting quickness not habitual to him. Indeed, no, said Dorothea earnestly. How can you imagine it, since he's so lately declined everything from you? I fear you think too hardly of him, dear. He only told me a little about his parents and grandparents, and almost all in answer to my questions. You're so good, so just. You've done everything you thought to be right, but it seems to me clear that more than that is right. And I must speak about it, since I'm the person who would get what is called benefit by that more not being done. There was a perceptible pause before Mr. Casabon replied, not quickly as before, but with a still more biting emphasis. Dorothea, my love, this is not the first occasion, but it were well that it should be the last, on which you have assumed a judgment on subjects beyond your scope. Into the question how far conduct, especially in the matter of alliances, constitutes a forfeiture of family claims, I do not now enter. Suffice it that you are not here qualified to discriminate. What I now wish you to understand is that I accept no revision still less dictation within that range of affairs which I've deliberated upon as distinctly and properly mine. It is not for you to interfere between me and Mr. Ladislaw, and still less to encourage communications from him to you which constitute a criticism on my procedure. Poor Dorothea, shrouded in the darkness, was in a tumult of conflicting emotions. Alarm at the possible effect on himself of her husband's strongly manifested anger would have checked any expression of her own resentment, even if she had been quite free from doubt and compunction under the consciousness that there might be some justice in his last insinuation. Hearing him breathe quickly after he had spoken, she sat listening, frightened, wretched, 
with a dumb inward cry for help to bear this nightmare of a life in which every energy was arrested by dread. But nothing else happened, except that they both remained a long while sleepless without speaking again. The next day, Mr. Casabon received the following answer from Will Ladislaw. Dear Mr. Casabon, I've given all due consideration to your letter of yesterday, but I am unable to take precisely your view of our mutual position. With the fullest acknowledgement of your generous conduct to me in the past, I must still maintain that an obligation of this kind cannot fairly fetter me as you appear to expect that it should. Granted that a benefactor's wishes may constitute a claim, there must always be a reservation as to the quality of those wishes. They may possibly clash with more imperative considerations, or a benefactor's veto might impose such a negation on a man's life that the consequent blank might be more cruel than the benefaction was generous. I'm merely using strong illustrations. In the present case, I'm unable to take your view of the bearing which my acceptance of occupation, not enriching certainly, but not dishonorable, will have on your own position which seems to me too substantial to be affected in that shadowy manner. And though I do not believe that any change in our relations will occur, certainly none has yet occurred, which can nullify the obligations imposed on me by the past, pardon me for not seeing that those obligations should restrain me from using the ordinary freedom of living where I choose and maintaining myself by any lawful occupation I may choose. Regretting that there exists this difference between us as to a relation in which the conferring of benefits has been entirely on your side, I remain yours with persistent obligation, Will Ladislaw. Poor Mr. Casabon felt, and must not we, being impartial, feel with him a little, that no man had juster cause for disgust and suspicion than he. Young Ladislaw, he was sure, meant to defy and annoy him, meant to win Dorothea's confidence and sow her mind with disrespect and perhaps aversion towards her husband. Some motive beneath the surface had been needed to account for Will's sudden change of course in rejecting Mr. Casabon's aid and quitting his travels and this defiant determination to fix himself in the neighborhood by taking up something so much at variance with his former choice as Mr. Brooks' Middlemarch projects, revealed clearly enough that the undeclared motive had relation to Dorothea. Not for one moment did Mr. Casabon suspect Dorothea of any doubleness. He had no suspicions of her, but he had, what was little less uncomfortable, the positive knowledge that her tendency to form opinions about her husband's conduct was accompanied with the disposition to regard Will Ladislaw favorably and be influenced by what he said. His own proud reticence had prevented him from ever being undeceived in the supposition that Dorothea had originally asked her uncle to invite Will to his house. And now, on receiving Will's letter, Mr. Casabon had to consider his duty. He would never have been easy to call his action anything else than duty, but in this case, Contending motives thrust him back into negations. Should he apply directly to Mr. Brooke and demand of that troublesome gentleman to revoke his proposal? Or should he consult Sir James Chetham and get him to concur in remonstrance against a step which touched the whole family? In either case, Mr. Casabon was aware that failure was just as probable as success. It was impossible for him to mention Dorothy's name in the matter, and without some alarming urgency, Mr. Brooke was as likely as not, after meeting all representations with apparent assent, to wind up by saying, never fear, Casabon, depend upon it. Young Ladislaw will do you credit. Depend upon it. I have put my finger on the right thing. And Mr. Casabon shrank nervously from communicating on the subject with Sir James Chetham, between whom and himself there had never been any cordiality, and who would immediately think of Dorothea without any mention of her. Poor Mr. Casabon was distrustful of everybody's feelings towards him, especially as a husband. To let anyone suppose that he was jealous would be to admit their suspected view of his disadvantages, 
to let them know that he did not find marriage particularly blissful would imply his conversion to their, probably, earlier disapproval. It would be as bad as letting Carp and Bracenose, generally, know how backward he was in organizing the matter for his key to all mythologies. As through his life, Mr. Casabon had been trying not to admit, even to himself, the inward sores of self-doubt and jealousy. And on the most delicate of all personal subjects, the habit of proud, suspicious reticence told doubly. Thus, Mr. Casabon remained proudly, bitterly silent. But he had forbidden Will to come to Lobick Manor, and he was mentally preparing other measures of frustration. <laughs>